Hello, you're listening to Renaissance Man, a podcast featuring my father, Philip Brunel, as he talks about the world of music. So I'm here to introduce to you Dominic Argento, who is one of America's most esteemed composers, a man that I have known since I got to the University of Minnesota in 1961, and he was my teacher. I then began performing his operas and his song cycles, and then I recorded his music. I have continued to perform it. We have become good friends. And it seemed like since he is the only Minnesota man to win a Pulitzer Prize in music, that he should be part of a podcast. So I don't, I don't have my hearing aids, so I'm not hearing everything you're saying. So if I answer some non sequitur, try to smooth over it. Okay, yeah. I'll just ask you the first thing. So when were you first attracted to music? There's more to the question there, by the way. Well, that's true. And then, when did it occur to you that music was something, a place, a business that you could live and work within? Tell, to tell the truth, I never was attracted to music. I just thought it would be an easy way to make a living. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I'm glad I've succeeded in it. I think I've defrauded more people out of their money out asking outrageous prices for a few notes of paper. Something anybody could do. Why don't you learn a trick? When did you start playing piano? I started playing at the age of 14, <clears throat> and I knew at the age of 16 you had to use your left hand also. Oh, <laughs> okay. okay. All right. Was it? Well, but you sang before that. No, I never sang. You didn't? No. Oh, okay. If you ever heard me sing, you'd know why. Okay. Well, what about in, in, in school? Did you were, did you play in the band or anything? I played the Alpha Clyde, yes. Oh, the Alpha Clyde. Okay, right. You probably never heard of it. No, right. You have not heard, perhaps, of the Alpha Clyde. Well, there was that whole... Uh, Concerto you wrote for the oh, yeah the Afaclide Concerto oh yes yeah <laughs> so what was the first piece of music you composed I I just received a copy of it the other day it was a dirge for piano oh and uh, terrible piece of music <laughs> uh, I had no idea what I was doing I was just putting notes on paper that I liked. Yeah. That sounded good together or sounded bad. And I thought when you do that long enough, you'd call it a composition. <laughs> okay. And what about when did you do your first piece of music with voice? First piece of music for voice was uh, sending a poem to by Jetons by, uh, oh gosh. I can't remember his name anymore. He wrote a series of uh, 
Hindu prayer called Jitanjali. And the first one is, I am here to sing these songs. In this house of thine, I have a corner's peace. And uh, it turned out to be prophetic. I mean, I guess I felt about that all my entire life, that I do have a corner's peace in a space that meant to put praising. And uh, praising with the voice. And I suspect that has some influence on what, what happened as a result. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so what would you say is the most challenging aspect about being a composer? Is it most challenging what aspect? What's aspect. the most? Yeah, you know, right. Eating uh, well. Okay. <laughs> so, when you you first went to you know you first went to Peabody, and then you went to Eastman. That's right. But you so was it? Peabody was like a bachelor's. A Peabody for the. Bachelor's and Master's. Okay. And that's when you studied with Hugo Weisskall. I studied with Hugo during both undergraduate and graduate work at Peabody. Okay. And I never studied with Hugo at, at Peabody because he was not ever on a staff there. Oh. Yeah, that was, for me, that was sort of a national disgrace that they had a composer of Hugo's stature and had some of the worst composition teachers you ever so I remember having counterpoint with a, a, a fellow who barely knew what a quad limit was. <laughs> so then you went from there to Eastman. Not directly, but eventually, yeah. Um, you know, because no, that's a you had your your um, uh, Guggenheim. Right. Yeah. Over at, at, at the end of the right. doctorate. So. Why did you, for the Guggenheim, choose Italy? Because while I was still a Peabody, I had a Fulbright Fellowship. Oh, I forgot. I forgot. And yep. to, to get a Fulbright Fellowship, you had to apply for a country where you knew the language. And the only language I could tell them I knew beyond English was Italian. And my teacher, Nabokov, was bright enough to figure, well, then say you want to go to Italy. That makes great sense. I did, of course, fell in love with Italy at a year there as a Guggenheim, as a Fulbright. Fulbright fellow. And when I applied for the Guggenheim, I just automatically picked, I wanted to go back, yep. try to study with uh, Dalla Piccolo again. So both times you studied with Dalla Piccolo? No, I wanted to, I mean, I mentioned that in Guggenheim, that I wanted to, but he was so busy by the time. I went back to study with him a second time. He was spending most of his time being a visiting farm and, you know, in Munich and uh, right. Russia, all over, all over the place. Was never available for lessons. Okay. But then, so after Fulbright, that's when you went to Eastman. Hmm. And you, is that when you studied with Bernard Rogers? Right. Okay. So how was he as a teacher? Of, of the seven teachers I've worked with, and six of them were really had international reputations. Rogers, for me, was the best teacher of all, and he was probably the least performed as a composer, uh, which for me 
made a very clear point whether a good composer is not necessarily a very good composition teacher. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, it, and I think I'm a living example of that. I don't regard myself as a, as a very uh, outstanding teacher. I, I can teach rudiments and so on, but the hardest part about composition can't be taught. And uh, teachers may attempt it, but there's, there's no proof of it. Well, the thing I noticed... What is the hardest? What is the hardest thing about composition that can't be taught? What, about it? Yeah, what can't be taught? What we... Uh, the, the silly thing we call originality. Right. What, what, how, how can you teach originality? And I think the other, the other part of it is equally unfair, uh, creativity. Uh, Britain is the best example. Britain is probably the most creative composer we've ever had. And uh, every piece he, he writes is like a, walking into new, new territory. That, that kind of attitude, ability, you cannot say your, your lesson for next week is, be, is to be more creative and try to try, if you can, to give me a little more of this. You can't do that. Yeah. You, just, you just tell a student write something, I'll look at it, and I'll tell you what it is, and we'll have a meeting actually, I'll criticize it, and you'll change it. Right. Yeah. Huh. No, you can't, you know, you know creativity, you can't say, I'll, I think I'm going to sign up for a course called How to Be Creative. Yeah. It doesn't happen. No. You can't do it. So, what I remember about Bernard Rogers was, uh, because I remember playing a piece of his in the Wind Ensemble, uh, beautiful colors that he came up with instrumentation-wise. Yes, he wrote a book called uh, I, can't, I can't even remember the title anymore. But it, it, the whole thing was music as color, ah. or, orchestra, orchestration as color. That, for example, brass. Most just think of it as red colors, red paint. Strings are more like yellow. Uh, woodwinds are more like green. Hmm. And you can even think of as an orchestration as a canvas with these colors, and you can, from that point, just extrapolate and start thinking of, hey, if I use that color, think of an abstract painting, and do it. And his, his, some of his pieces come out like that. Yeah. Uh, which may be one of the reasons he's not the most performed of those seven composers I mentioned, but. Uh, well, I remember there was a piece called Three Japanese Dancers. Oh, yeah. That's a, that's a, a famous piece. Yeah. Oh, it was a beautiful piece. A, a brilliant orchestration. Oh, wonderful orchestration. Yeah. yeah his, his favorite piece was, he's, you all know, but you don't uh, think, The Passion. Oh, yes. You know it? I, I do. I have a copy of it. There, there, was, there was a premiere with a rather famous baritone. I can't remember his name anymore at the time. And uh, he had a old collection of acetate records of the premiere of it. And I'm one of the few people, I guess, who ever heard a guy at his home one evening. Uh, I think it's a beautiful piece. And uh, talk about creativity, it was filled with things like the moment that Jesus dies on a cross. Yeah. There is a chord that uses all 12 notes across the whole span from orchestra from low to bottom. And I remember him talking about that one day. He just said, he wanted to think of something that would 
musical equivalent of all used up, which he, huh. Huh. would be the condition of Christ on the cross. Right. And uh, he, he was a genius that way. He was a, a great teacher for thinking of analogies for what you were doing. Because uh, it's so hard to talk about music. Right. As I, I think Copeland once said, anytime two musicians get together and say, talk about music, there's a sheet of music there, and they're pointing at something, or they're sitting at the piano and playing, listening to something. But you can't talk about it as if it were an actual item, or, right, or yeah. a physical entity to talk about. Yeah. Right. Was um, was how how much of a figure at Eastman was Howard Hanson in those days? How much of what? Was he? Uh, was he? Hanson. Hanson. Yeah. Well, he he was. A dominating figure. Uh -huh. He he wasn't around a lot, and he 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 was he was actually very very interested in the composition people he had. Uh, he, my problem with him was that his fame was such that he sort of missed every other lesson because he was in Cincinnati or somewhere conducting or doing a clinic. But uh, he was a good teacher. What I remember most about him was his. Other serious composers, I think, sort of laughed a little bit at Hanson. He was old-fashioned. Right. But he was doing great things for people like Roger Sessions or Milton Babbitt. I remember with his Eastman Orchestra, he, he was recording a ballet of Elliot Carter's. I think it's called Pocahontas. And he had invited Carter to come to Rochester but Carter was so busy earning a living as a composer, he could not afford the time. Hanson, at the rehearsals and at the recording sessions, had an open line telephone, long distance, to wherever uh, Carter was at the time, and it would play over a whole section that say, Elliot, how does that sound? What do you want, more flute? Okay. It's all over long distance, and he would spend that kind of money encouraging other composers. Huh. Usually the same composer who mocked his music. I know that's and that's the sad thing because I, again, Hanson had a wonderful grasp of um, orchestration mm -hmm. and color, you know. And yes, it was in the romantic style, which was what he what he grew up with. But I think I, I know that the the Metropolitan Symphony is going to play. Or did play this past season, Symphony Number no. Two, and yep. when I when I hear Symphony Number no. Two these days, I don't hear it as a sort of huge lump of sugar the way I heard it when I was a kid. I hear it today with a lot more respect, uh, knowing what I know about the whole business of music. Uh, I, w I wish it were more generally known. It deserves to be known. I think there are entire audiences of Orchestras all around our country have never heard that kind of music from an American composer, right? And and think that everything sounds a bit like Elliot Carter.
comes to composing for voice, do you have a preference? Would you rather write for, say, solo voice, like a, a, a suite of songs, or you prefer doing opera? Well, how much do they pay? <laughs> That's true. It's true. Yeah. I, I prefer doing an opera, except that opera is going to take three years. And I can write a lot of songs or short pieces, choral works, uh, orchestra pieces, even in the same amount of time. Right. So in, in some ways, it's a bit of a sacrifice to accept an opera commission. Right. Unless you can get a very exorbitant fee. But, Have you? Uh, opera would just interest me more because it's a challenge. Songs I know pretty much I've done them what I want to do. There are things in opera I'd like to do, but I haven't done that. I'd like to get transplanted. Now, I always have said about you that there are composers who are wonderful writers for voice, don't have a clue what to do with the instruments, and mm -hmm. there shall, are shall composers... We, shall, shall, we name, shall we name... <laughs> Shall we name no, them? No, no, yes. I'm, I'm thinking of Schubert <laughs> yes. and Schumann. Oh, yes, yes. Uh, Mendelssohn, I think, tried to write an opera. I'm not sure if it probably sounds like Jack and Elijah. Right, yeah. Uh, well, it, 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 very interesting. Uh, I've always used that as an example that that's, that's how opera is different than uh, song, that it's not just a series of songs that are in a row connected by a drama there's something more fundamental in opera that you hear when you hear traviata that's that's of a piece right that is uh different than anything that happens in a song right yep you know and also not every composer you can but ma many composers aren't comfortable doing both voice and Orchestra, yeah, you know, and so you might you might hear a vocal part, but the orchestra part is not going anywhere. Mm. So I think that's to me one of the one of the things that distinguishes what you do, which I always have loved is oh, listen to that effect there, but also the vocal part of it. Mm -hmm. So was were the Elizabethan songs yeah. the first vocal piece that sort the of first piece I wrote when I got out of school, yeah. Yeah, and but uh, but that made that made a national attention. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, I I was told by the publisher that it, shortly after it was published, it got onto the list of required repertoire for all music students in Canada. Ah. All voice majors had to had to sing select from it, but. Uh, that made a difference, of course, in the income that came out of it. Yeah. Have you any idea how many copies of that piece have been sold over the years? I could imagine by now if it's in the thousands. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I'm, I, I'm always pleased. I, as it just happened yesterday, I received my royalty statement from Uzi. Yeah. And page after page is just citations of Lunas and songs. Great. As was something you recommended one time, taking the Gloria out of the Mask of Angels. Yes. That also just goes on every year after year. You can count on it. Uh, it's it's better than a bestseller because 
best sellers last for a few months, etc. Because up here, uh, pieces like Elizabeth's songs have been selling probably as much year, every year as it, as it did one in its heyday. Wow, great, huh. good. And yeah. the thing with the Gloria, oh, I know this with the Gloria, because people are all, yeah. oh, you know, yeah, they they love to see it. So, how do you find text? I read like crazy. Yeah. Yep, I know you do. You can take a look at what I'm reading right now there. Okay, on the desk here is T.S. Eliot, Inventions of the March Hare. And yeah, also, rather, and then underneath that, that I that, have... That's what I do after I read one of these and get a headache. Oh, Bones and Silence by Reginald Hill. He's one of my favorite mystery writers. Okay, and then here we have A Life, the story of Henry David Thoreau. Of course, you know that's what's on that's what's on the table here. We've got Thoreau, Bones and Silence, and T. S. Eliot. Excellent. Which, as you know, Sarinsky pointed out, you can spell T. S. Eliot almost backwards and get the word toilet. <laughs> <laughs> I don't remember whether there's any significance to that. But. <laughs> You see what we're into yeah, here? Yeah, yeah. I get it. When did you start your career in stand-up? <laughs> about, about 20 minutes ago, I think. <laughs> I love it. So, uh... I can ask this one. Okay, yeah, so you ask. Well, when did you first meet him? And, more importantly... It was about two years after he took my course. Yeah. What did you think? Well, I think I've characterized my meeting with with your father by noticing what the back of his the hand looked like. Because any time I had a question in class, the first hand that shot up belonged to him. Mm. And so I never saw his face. I saw the palm. <laughs> Outside of the classroom, I would never have known him unless he showed me his open fist. Uh, I can't even remember what course, but that was not orchestration. It was no, it was opera history. Opera history, you know. And I, uh, well, I, I was aware of the fact that he was the brightest kid in the class, and that I had to be very careful. I didn't say the wrong thing or mispronounce the name, as I did. Uh, I, I don't think you were in that class at the year that Vern Sutton was in it. No, he was before me. Yeah, in any case, I had to talk about an obscure Italian composer in the history of opera, it was important. And I remember in class saying that uh, Antonio Corpora, which is, for me, Corpora, it would be the way to pronounce it. I, when I learned Italian, I was always told that if you don't know the, where the accent goes, it's probably going to belong to the penultimate syllable. syllable. So I said Corpora, and Vern was to the class that uh, he embarrassed me by saying, uh, Professor Argento, uh, Cesar Porpora, and he, he corrected my pronunciation because he was doing a dissertation on that composer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, I've always said, if you're going to take opera history, take it from an opera composer because you will learn well, first of all, you learn the construction, but then you also learn all the biases. But you remember the exception to that, but don't don't study with Gounod. 
Oh no, 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 no. Yeah. Why wouldn't you want to study with Gounod? Not, not the composer. Well, you know, he he couldn't teach you a thing. No. Well, I still remember with Gounod, you said, uh, our next composer will be Charles Gounod, and then you said it is difficult to be serious about a man who would write an opera called The Bleeding Nun. Well, I thought that was pornographic. Oh, well, but you did say that. I remember that very well. And then you went on and talked about it. But we all knew which composers he admired from the past very much. We knew exactly. And we and then we also knew what things we needed to focus on, uh, which composers, which operas, right. etc. Oh, yes. What, what was your favorite thing about... Why keep why year after year? Why keep teaching? What 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 did you get? What did you derive? What did you appreciate about teaching? Well, he got a salary. Well, yeah, <laughs> I, an income. An income, yes. A living. <laughs> uh, well, intellectually. Yeah, but I I I have to go back to the old cliche. I think I learned more about teaching by teaching. Uh, I learned more. The old saying is you learn more from your students, and that's true, I think. Uh, teaching was a way of staying alive intellectually for me. Mm -hmm. I, I, to have to talk about what you do every day, day after day, meant sort of re-examining it constantly. And it seems to me anybody who's interested in doing something artistic, writing or poetry or painting, that you need to constantly be in touch with the material you work with, thinking about it, in love with it. Uh, that's enough.
Philip was your student. When he came to you to ask for a commission the first time, what did you think? It was well. I know what it was. How for. how much can, how much can they afford? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I can't remember. I I, um, I probably spent the next couple of decades asking for the same amount for a commission, whether it was from Philip or as a complete stranger. Yeah. I just thought it's a nice round number. Yeah. I, I could get away with that. Right. But I, I guess I'm curious, did it did it intrigue you that one of your students would come back and, and commission you? And, and Because then the relationship is different, isn't it? Between if, if you're the teacher and he's the student, and now he is commissioning you and you were mm -hmm. the composer, is that a different kind of relationship? No, because he was also, he had something going at the time called the Plymouth Music Series, yeah. which was which was a significant musical organization in town here. Yeah. And so he was not a student any longer. He was a he was a working professional. Yeah. And uh, I was aware of what he could do with his group. And that was a time when Philip, I think, highest aspiration was to do one obscure handle or trio every year. Yep. And, and did you do them all? I didn't do them all. I did ten of them, that, but that, I never that felt, did. That felt like all of them. <laughs> <laughs> but I never did Messiah because I said yeah. everybody will do that. Yeah. You know who's going to do the others? And there are a couple of them. You know, I mean, which I still remember. I think the most beautiful choruses were in the one Solomon. They are just amazing. Mm. Theatrically, the most amazing was Saul. Because it was a great story, but uh, but and and I still remember that moment in Belshazzar when the violins are doing the writing on the wall, mm -hmm. eh, 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 and it was like whoa, it was am amazing. But I did learn doing them in the years that I didn't have at the beginning. I did every note, and then I learned later that maybe the audience didn't want to hear every note, that maybe three hours of a handle oratorio was too much. So then I started, and then I found out Handel had done that. <laughs> he made cuts. He didn't do it all, you know? Yeah. So. Well, I think any composer would, like a Handel would have been the first one to tell you, I think there's a lot of times in a, in a big work like that, you've got to use filler music. And, and the, those guys, have wonderful command of filler music. They can just turn a crank it's and true. give you music by the yard. It's true. It's true. And, and that's you could do when the, when the vocabulary of music was that limited. I'm, I'm often asked whether my harness of hearing bothers me as much as Beethoven's bothered him. Uh, that he was, I say I can't really write anymore, but it did not stop did not stop Beethoven. But Beethoven worked with a very simple alphabet. I mean, A, B, C was enough for Beethoven to write five hours of music. Uh, in our time, we have such a uh, complex alphabet or vocabulary, whatever you want to use, but you, you, unless you really have fairly sensitive ears, and total recollection of what the sounds were, 
it's impossible, I think, to write another piece of music. Yeah. When when you're only, it's, I'll make it. I'll make an obscene comparison. Most uh, what we call songwriters today, those inarticulate musicians with a guitar, they need two chords. One of them is tonic, and the other one ain't. That, that's all. That's all you need. You just keep plunking away right. until you get tired of that sound, and you hit the the other chord, and know you got to come back to the first one. Yep. And that's in a in a way that's how simple I think writing music was for a Beethoven. Uh, he could hear very well uh, what what those chords were. He do nothing but that his whole career. And I think that would be that's why it's harder I think for. Uh, Contemporary composer continue into writing when his hearing is not his offense. Right. I have a, a question. So, how many how many commissions have you done? I have no idea. Hundreds. Most, almost every piece I have that's in the catalog is a commission. Okay. Is a commission. So, what advice? If if Philip comes to you and says, Dominic, I'd like to hire you to, mm -hmm. or so, what advice would you give to commissioners, to people coming to you, uh, in terms of how to work with you best? Well, in Philip's case, uh, I think my, I more often than not, did not, we never talked about a commission. Mm -hmm. If Philip, one of the piece, I wrote the piece, yeah. as you will remember from your own wedding, yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that Philip was a friend, and the idea of writing a piece was for a friend or children of friends. That, that was different than a commission. Uh, when, when a request came from a fellow musician, particularly when it was a very talented one, you, you, you wanted to do that piece regardless of what the fee was. Right. I mean, when... When the Schubert Club started talking to me about writing music for somebody like uh, Lanstada or Gina Baker or yeah. Hogan Hogan, I, I was sufficiently thrilled to be writing for people I admired that much. Yep. That I wasn't worried that I, wasn't, I couldn't ask for a maximum fee or something. Right. Right. But in terms of, um, I, 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 I'm thinking of like the relationship between a client and an architect. Mm -hmm. Um, what advice would you give the, the client in terms of uh, uh, making edits or making requests for orchestration? And do, do they, can they ask that of you? Uh, how, do you how do you work with a composer best? I've never had that kind of a conversation with a composition student mm, no. or fellow composer. In my own case, I, don't, I think of, <coughs> I would like to believe that I'm earning somewhere like five hundred dollars for an hour of, of music, mm -hmm. at at not not an hour of music. I would say half hour of music. Mm -hmm. And so, if a piece is going to be say an hour and a half long, it's going to be three times that base fee. Mm -hmm. uh, that's primarily because over the years I've learned that to write a, a minute of music is going to take me sometimes a, a week. Mm -hmm. And I'd like to feel like I can make as much in a week as an auto mechanic makes at the garage. Mm. That I'm not doing anything much more extraordinary. But 
know, I, I, I never understand why people feel these are very important. For me, the, the great part of the commission is that somebody has just said, I want to do your music. Yep. And they want to do something they've never even heard before. And they're basing that on their either admiration or acquaintance with what you've done in the past. Yeah. Now, somebody, uh, occasionally, someone will come to him, I know this, with an idea for a piece which he then would say, um, maybe not that, but I'll suggest something else. Mm -hmm. Like when you did the piece, when you did the Tadeum, and that lady wanted you to write something about, was it Troy, New York, or something, or Buffalo? Mm -hmm. She wanted you to write about Buffalo, New York. Yeah. That was, that's what she wanted the piece to be. And the first time I was approached for a commission for a Dallas opera, they, they had a suggestion for a work because they had a donor who had a lot of money, wanted to put up an opera. It, uh, the donor had a favorite cowboy story mm -hmm. that concerned Dallas history, and, and it was real. And they said, are you interested? And they, they mentioned a figure, and I said, I, let me think about it. I really don't believe I want to write an opera about a cowboy. Mm -hmm. Not that cowboy, anyhow. Uh, luckily, that later turned into Dallas being interested in, in what would you like to write for us? And I mentioned the uh, Aspen Papers, and that turned out to be what they accepted and they approved of. Yeah. Yeah. So is it is it a, in in that relationship? Is it is it um, is there much? Um, Give and take. Do you? I guess I don't know. I mean, uh, when you were that varies. I mean, I don't normally show anything to the person who's commissioning it. That's often been the case because the person who's commissioning it is not the musician, but is right. either the agent or the manager of, a, of an organization. But uh, the first really serious piece I did for Philip was uh, Jonah and a Whale. Yeah. And I did think that that, that I, I don't remember discussing with anybody, and I, I don't believe I showed you any of that, did I? No. Do you remember? But uh, if I'm writing something, and there are questions in my mind about whether they can do it or not, I'll let them know I have doubts. If they feel comfortable doing it, it stands. If you don't like it, I'll, I'll try to write something different. I'll change any notes anybody wants. I, I'm not that, I don't think I write necessarily in concrete. Yeah. And it, 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 the whole idea, I think, in writing commissions is to please the person who's going to do the music. I'm, I'm less interested in writing a piece that's been commissioned by, a, say, a, a group. Yeah. They're like a commissioning club. Yeah. They get together. Let, oh, let's commission Johnny to write a piece. Uh, and it's questionable why that group decided to pick on Johnny. Yeah. Uh, and not not any one particular member of that group has a strong uh, affection for Johnny or his music. Right. But it, it's quite different. Somebody like Philip. Even if he wants something just for 
for even for vocal excellence. I know vocal excellence is the truth, but I know I'll enjoy what they can do with it. So I write the piece. Right. But I think half of a commission ought to be inspection. I mean, the organization that wants it is going to pay you a little bit of money because you have to live on something in the meanwhile. But an important part of that is that they, they love you to the point that they're really just spending their money on it or, or their resources. Yeah. yeah. And, and that, I think, is a reward, too. What, uh, speaking of reward, you know, looking back, what, what have you gotten out of being a composer? What's been the greatest joy for you in writing music? I was going to say my Lexus, but I had. <laughs> my Lexus. I told him that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, I, I, I don't know, Tim, the, to me, the joy is in the writing of his music. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's hard to explain unless you are creative that way yourself. That sitting at the piano and writing this piece, I'm writing it for Janet Baker, and I'm thinking, my gosh, she's got a singing thing at Carnegie Hall. And uh, that means I don't, don't like that note. I change it to something else. But the joy of, of creation is something you don't share. Or something you, you, the artist. I hate that word because Trump, uh, not Trump. But, uh, that's a Freudian slip. Prince, <laughs> Prince. I'm thinking of people who recently died. Yeah. No. Uh, I don't mean artist, but the creator, whoever yeah. I've ever seen creating, if they had a good day, you see it on their face and their action. If they had a bad day, they're practically dead. Yeah. And they, they, when people speak of the joy of, of, of composition or creativity, the joy is what you get privately, at least I do in my case. Yeah.
you're seriously going to use that. Well, you know. you'll, we will edit. Yeah, we'll edit parts. Is there anything you feel that we have not covered? Is there anything, any, anything? You know, we haven't talked about the sex life of composers. Oh. Well, we, did, we did hint at it. We hinted at it at the beginning. Yeah, right. Yeah. Oh, go. <laughs> My God, do you realize we, we ran into happy hour? Oh, my word.